Hello, this is Pastor Lute. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. Our mission is to grow disciples and multiply churches who will glorify God and transform communities. So, senior year of college, um, rooming with uh, another guy, uh, Andrew, good guy. Uh, One night we had uh, some band thing somewhere, so we were gone. Uh, a couple friends of ours, uh, a couple girls that we knew, called up and were like, hey, Luke, can we borrow your car tonight? Uh, we have some stuff that we need to do. And uh, it was odd, because they had cars. And I should have paid attention to that. But I was like, sure, I, yeah, whatever. I, yeah, sure, here, here, here are the keys. So we go to this thing, and we come back, and we try to get into our room, and, like, there's something blocking it. Like, we have to push like really hard to get the door open and someone someone has turned our room into like a mini forest right like there are um small pine trees that have been tied to the bunk beds there are branches in the bed there are like stalks of reeds there's rocks by the door just all kinds of stuff but we we knew who did it because when we got back there is literally a trail of like branches and twigs and grass from the trunk of my car, like when we arrived, I was like, what is all this stuff by the trunk of my car? And literally, you can follow it through the parking lot and then up the steps to the front door of our room. And how the rooms were set up, you know, there's like two rooms and a shared bathroom, and our room was locked. But they just, they bribed the other room with cookies. So that's the cost of their loyalty, thanks, Jeff. You know, and so we show up, and he's munching on a cookie. He's like, dude, I have no idea what happened. That's just, that's awful. But it was kind of one of those moments where at the time you're like, this is weird, but I'm not really, you know, I'm doing other things. Like, this is odd. And then later on, just kind of this wave of awareness washes over, and you're like, oh, that. Because, see, they had, they had decided on the prank, but then they had decided, we don't want to get our cars dirty. How about we just borrow Luke's um, for this? And so that's what they had done. And there's just like this, you know, awareness that, that kind of washes over you on, on what had happened. Um, had a kind of a, a similar thing this the last couple weeks, um, just where with what we're seeing in culture, what we're seeing uh, in kind of the grand narrative of Scripture, and also what we're seeing in Hosea, just kind of all overlapped and, and tied together. So we're on a sermon series. We're looking at the minor prophets in the Old Testament. We spent a couple weeks in Amos, and then this is our, our second and our final week in Hosea. So in Scripture, you have the major, it's, they're called the major prophets and the, the minor prophets of the Old Testament. And combined, they make up over 25% of Scripture. So we have to say that, okay, there, there must be something in there that God wanted us to know. Um, they're, they're the five major prophets are called major because they wrote long books. And then the 12 minor prophets because they wrote small books, right? Um, all equally valuable, just different sizes. So... Uh, we've been in, we were in Hosea last week. We did just kind of an overview of the story. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with that story, um, Israel has, at that time, Israel has abandoned God in all kinds of, of horrible ways, turned their, their back on God um, for a long time. Amos talks a lot about the social injustices that were happening in Israel at that time. And um, God is about ready to send in uh, an invading army as punishment, and they're going to capture or kill. I mean, if you take the verses literally, they're going to capture or kill 90% of the Israelites, um, you know, haul them away to, to slavery, and only just a small remnant 
will be uh, left behind, and, and, and we know that that does eventually happen. But God, in what I would describe kind of as a last-ditch effort to try to get the attention of the Israelites, he shares a message through Hosea. And, and he, he asks Hosea to first live a message before he can then proclaim the message. And the message that he wants Hosea to live and eventually proclaim is that he asks Hosea to marry um, an unfaithful wife. Uh, things are okay for a while, but then she leaves him. She commits adultery, uh, gets stuck in, in debt slavery. Hosea goes, he buys her out of slavery, brings her back into his home, renews his covenant with her. And then for the next ten chapters, God is unpacking that story and explaining how that is Israel's behavior, very adulterous behavior, and how much God desires to to have a renewed uh, relationship with Israel and, and how he's willing to, to do this thing. So, I mean, Hosea is, is possibly one of the greatest examples, really, that we have of God's salvation second to the cross. I mean, the way that it foretells the salvation story in a very condensed way is, is remarkable. When we look at the whole of, of Scripture... Um, and kind of the major themes and, and kind of very broad brush strokes, we see a salvation story. And, and the, the smart people, theologians, tend to break it up into four rough categories. Uh, so they would, it would be creation, and then fall, and then um, salvation or redemption, and then some element of heaven or restoration. So in kind of the grand narrative scripture, this is what it would look like. So you would have creation, right? And so God made the heavens and the earth. He made you and me. Uh, mankind is the kind of the crowning artistry of his creation. Uh, we are made by God. We are loved by God. In the beginning, mankind lived with God. It was wonderful. It was perfect. It was fun. It was fantastic. That's the creation part of the story. That lasts, I think it's two chapters, and then we goof it up. And then we have the fall. The fall is that when God created mankind, there were just a few rules in place, like one or two, uh, and mankind went and broke them. And, um, and in doing so, we allowed sin into the world. Because of that, the entire world now struggles with sin, temptation, evil, selfishness. Uh, there are verses that talk about the whole world being in, in a state of decay. And it's like this disease entered our world, and now everything is just rotting and, and decomposing. Um, also, our sin created a barrier between us and God. Uh, God is holy. He's perfect. But our sin now creates a separation. And what was once a wonderful relationship is now broken by us, right? I mean, that's totally on us. Um, and we're stuck. There, there's no way out of that. We're incapable of rescuing ourselves. We're, we're stuck. So that's the fall part of the story. Then you have the salvation part of the story. So God recognizes that, that we are unable to rescue ourselves. We're unable to restore this relationship we had with God. So God rescues us, right? Our sin demands payment because God is just. Uh, and so Jesus comes, he teaches us how to live, and then he dies on the cross in our place, uh, takes our punishment. And because of that, we have the opportunity of restored relationship with God. Uh, God rescues us when we're unable to rescue ourselves. Uh, but then he also gives us a mission and a purpose here on earth. And then you have the last part, so the, the heaven part. Uh, we get to live with God forever. The relationship is restored. Heaven's a wonderful place. It's full of adventure and life and peace. 
and fellowship and community and worship of God. Um, plus, I mean, just while on earth, we have the Holy Spirit living within us, and he's leading us and guiding us. What's interesting is that secular society has really adopted their own version of this storyline. And when you, when you know what to look for, you start to see it all around you. And it really starts to, to kind of make sense what you're seeing and why. The only thing is that this, their storyline doesn't have God in it, right? Um, this, I think we encountered this, it was more blatant, I think, perhaps like when we were in Abbotsford in, in the Vancouver area, um, you, you know, so it's probably more blatant in some of your urban centers or, or coastal cities. I think it's a lot more prevalent amongst young people than, than we realize. And so this, this is not something to be dismissive of. I, I think this is incredibly prevalent. And actually, as we watch for it, I think you'll see ways that it's actually um, sneaking into uh, even just church, church culture, that kind of thing. So creation, secular salvation, creation goes like this. I was born a good, perfect, uh, a good person. Uh, I was born perfect. Therefore... All of my desires and wishes must be good because I'm good. My, my heart is pure. Um, the perfection of creation is my pure inner self, uh, my inner child. Uh, kind of a very easy example of it. If, if you want to know what culture thinks, just look to your artists and your musicians, and they'll just spell it out for you. And then you can look up the, the lyrics on Google, and there it is. Um, a very easy example of this. Uh, this was um, almost 10 years ago. Um, Lady Gaga wrote a song, I was born this way. Um, uh, my mama told me when I was young, we were all born superstars. There is nothing wrong with loving who you are. He made you perfect. Uh, hold your head up, you'll go far. I'm beautiful in, in my way. God makes no mistakes. And so it's just kind of an easy example of kind of the, this prevalent idea that I was born perfect. And, and even amongst Christians, we're, we're seeing this idea uh, kind of spread that however I was born, that's how God made me, and God doesn't make mistakes, so if I was born that way, then, then God wanted me to be that way, and so it's not a sin. Be- because if I can convince you that I was born that way, and God is perfect, then whatever that is, it, it's not a sin. So if, if I was born with, with certain desires, or not certain desires, or sort of personality traits, or that kind of thing, like whatever it is, God made me that way, it's perfect, it doesn't need to change. And we've really kind of forgotten this idea, because scripture, the, this, the, the gospel salvation story would say that we're born sinners. And we've kind of forgotten that or moved away from that. Uh, Psalm 51.5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, uh, in, in sin I was conceived. Ecclesiastes, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who, who does good and never sins. Romans 3.23, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. So scripture would say that we're born sinners, um, but the secular salvation story says that we were born perfect. So what happens then, so if that's creation, then the fall, the fall is any kind of uh, trauma, wounds, any kind of external identities that are, that are forced upon me, any kind of external pressures to be something or to do something that I'm not. Um, anything that does not arise from my pure, true inner self, uh, any external op- op- oppression or any internal repression, right? 
even binding commitments, right? These are all the fault. Any kind of binding commitments, that can be marriage, duty, rules, obligations, they're all associated with the fall and how things went, went wrong. And the fall is really anything that makes me feel less valued or anything that makes me feel disrespected. Um, anything that limits or oppresses my true self, um, because anything that is wrong with me originated outside of me. And, and it was a pressure put on me. And so, um, you, you know, there's, a, you know, kind of we're all victim mentality, that kind of thing, how I've been oppressed. Um, I, you know, you, you hurt my feelings. Um, my, my inner self was repressed, that kind of thing. Um, sin is not feeling happy or not feeling good about yourself, and it's any kind of shame. And there's, I can give you a great example of how that shame idea has kind of infiltrated the church, um, but I can't do it in detail from the, the pulpit because it's, the, it's, it's kind of a weird one. But anyways, so um, sin is, is anything that originates outside of us. Salvation then. Here's salvation. Salvation is I have to get back to my true inner self. That's how things are restored. That's how things are, are set right. Uh, to thy own self be true. Uh, I have to rediscover my inner self. Um, I have to stop the haters, ignore that. You have to be you, be, be the true you. Don't let anyone get in your way. More and more you hear stuff about your truth, which is, uh, now I forget the name of it, right? Something that's self-contradictory. But anyways, you know, lots of stuff on your truth. What is your truth? Speak your truth, that kind of thing. Um, kind of another song that, that kind of ties in with this. You know, Taylor Swift had a song called shake it off it's a fun song you know haters and fakers and you just kind of need to be you and kind of a fun popular song but when your salvation narrative is i have to get back to my own self then a fun pop song shifts from a fun pop song to actually a worship song about salvation because this isn't just kind of a fun thing about you know, b- being you, this is, this is how I am saved. And so it, you, it's kind of fascinating how that, that transitions. Self-love is very big. We see a lot of stuff on self-love. Got to learn to love ourselves better. Um, if, I'm, if I'm suffering, it's because I haven't lear- learned to properly self-love. Uh, building your confidence, your self-esteem through self-love, self-forgiveness. And just how do I get back to that inner self that, that's been corrupted by all these external evils, all these uh, external pressures, and that kind of thing. Heaven then becomes like a glass of wine on a nice beach with good people, right? Like that's kind of the ideal thing that, that, that we're living for. Um, heaven just becomes pleasure, the good life, uh, hanging out with, with good people. Um, there, it, heaven is a place with no restrictions, with no binding commitments, uh, no external authority on you. You are just free to be your idealized, true, inner self, you know, whatever that is. So when I first heard that unpacked, it, for me it was amazing because it was like, oh, I, I, I get it now, right? Because have been seeing kind of hints of this in culture and you're like, what is that? that? That seems odd, you know, and then to have that just kind of unpacked. And, um, and, and it was, it's one of those things where it gives words and, and reason to what you've been picking up on, on around you. Um, 
And at first it was, you know, the whole kind of secular salvation story seemed kind of silly. But after a while it actually became very sad. Because what kind of future is it when I have to be my own author of salvation? Like, and, and what happened, you know, so I'm trying to get back to my true inner self. What if I pick the wrong inner self? Like, you know, like, like what? And so there's actually a lot of anxiety around, the, uh, around this as, as well, too. Um, one of the things you probably noticed, too, is just that the, the secular salvation is profound individualism. Just profound. Um, all hope, all purity, all trueness, all salvation is found within and evil is just anything outside us. One pastor said that in his context, this is just creating profound loneliness amongst the people. I mean, just deep, deep loneliness as, as people um, wrestle with this. Also, I think it denies anything majestic, right? I mean, the, the whole schema de- denies God, it denies creator, it denies need for him. And I think it denies just being part of something bigger than, than ourselves. Um, just for the fun of it, I googled motivational quotes. It's amazing, amazing, when you start to look for it, how many motivational quotes would have you look within to find your strength and your rescue and your restoration and your hope for the future and, and that kind of thing. Just kind of as an exercise, using that. And, I mean, there's, there's a bit of truth in all of them, right? I mean, like, sometimes you just kind of got to get your act together and engage a little bit, you know, like I, I recognize that. But at, at the same time, though, if, if you look at it with, with that secular salvation lens, you, you see it um, all over the place. Um, and actually, so, you know, w- when you take this framework, creation, fall, salvation, heaven, you actually start to notice that pattern anywhere, right? Because it's, it's like, you know, because you can have like the fitness salvation, or like the skinny person salvation, you know, where I was born perfect, and then I got fat, but, you know, I got to get abs again, you know, and then life will be awesome, because we'll be on the beach, but this time I'll have abs, you know, or, you know, marriage salvation, or career salvation, or what, trophy kid salvation, or trophy wife salvation. There's no trophy husband. I'm sorry, guys, that's not a thing. But, um, you know, trophy wife, trophy kid. So you, you, you start to see that just in a lot of places. In the, in the story of Hosea and Gomer, right, God is desperate to get the attention of the Israelites. And so he tells Hosea, I, you, I want you to live out a message, and then I want you to proclaim this, this message. And, and, here's, and so here's the story then that, that Hosea lives out that is meant to be sort of foretelling of God's salvation story. So they get married. That, you know, so the creation, they get married, they form a family, they make commitments to one another, things are good. Then there's the fall, Gomer leaves, she, she falls in love with someone else, she's unfaithful, she somehow gets entangled in, in debt slavery, uh, she, she acquires debts she can't pay off on her own, and so she's slave to another, and all this because she abandoned her first love. And then there's redemption. Hosea pursues her, he looks for her, he finds her, he buys her out of debt slavery. And then there's restoration. He brings her back into his home, that he renews his, his covenant with her. And the whole thing, the whole thing is meant to model God's salvation story, right? Which we talked about at the beginning. You know, creation, God made us, fall, we sinned, 
you know, salvation in Jesus. He rescued us. And then heaven where, where we have restored relationship with him. But my, and this is kind of my theory on this, though, is that, that God has so ingrained within, within us, within humanity, this desire for some kind of salvation story, that even when we don't have Christ, know about Christ, or we reject Christ, we still look for it elsewhere, and we still play it out in some other part of our life, unintentionally, but, but where we can find it. Right? Some people reject Christ you know, for whatever reason, but they're still building that storyline of there was perfection, something wrong happened, I need to get back to that state of perfection, and then really good things are, are going to be there for me. Like, like there's a, an ideal world that, that waits for me. And it's just, it's such a natural part of our psyche that we're just, we're always looking for that storyline, and even without Jesus, we, we write our own storyline. Um, another thing that, that ties in with this was kind of interesting. Uh, if you want to know a person's salvation story, kind of their, their salvation schema, ask them their sin, or ask them their biggest sin, or worst sin, because once you identify what they believe to be kind of their worst sin, the follow-up question then is often, what's my functional God to save me from that sin and to take me to a, a better place? There was a, uh, an article read a little while ago, um, and, it, and it, it ties in because it, it talks about just our, our misalignment on salvation's story, uh, even amongst Christians, um, uh, which is... You know, which is what we do and what the Israelites were doing. So, a few years ago, the Barna conducted a survey, and a whole bunch of men and women, and, and they call them up and they said, um, "Like, what sin do you struggle with the most?" Okay. Now, just kind of as a reference, so you understand kind of some of the options, right? I mean, in somewhere in the history of Christendom, some theologians came up with the seven deadly sins. You know, lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath. Envy, pride, you know, some theologians said these have kind of the worst consequences. So presumably you have that on the list. Um, you have sins of omission and you have sins of commission, right? So a sin of commission is I did something that I should not have done. But a sin of omission is that I failed to do something that I, I should have done. So it's not just bad behavior, but it's also failure to do good behavior. So that opens up a whole list of, of options for sins. And Romans 14.23 says that actually anything not done in faith is sin. So we've got a pretty good list of sins, okay? So they, they surveyed all these men and women on, on what is the, the worst sin that you struggle with, what you, you struggle with the, the most. Um, honestly, I don't remember what the men said. Um, but the response from the women, and that was kind of the, the focus of the article, is that their greatest sin... Right, the thing that they do or don't do the most that just that grieves the heart of God the most that 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 most contradicts the teaching of scriptures, uh, the the thing that is just most offensive to an all holy God. The, the number one thing, their sin, disorganization. Fifty percent of the women they said that was their greatest sin. Second greatest sin. Uh, was inefficiency. It just the wrath of God is at its tipping point. Inefficient. I, it's 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 bad, right? Um, 
In researching that story, found another story. Uh, this one was, I, I think it was maybe like a college professor. She, she referenced speaking with multiple groups of students and the pattern, and she was like, has anyone else seen this pattern? It's very odd. Uh, so she would have the, these students, presumably college students, and she would ask them, you know, what are the sins that Christians face the most today? And pretty quick, they, they, they labeled off um, internet stuff, and I'll just call it that because there's young ears in the audience, right? So internet stuff. Um, and then pride and then lust and then anger, right? They cranked those out real fast. But then they couldn't think of anything. <laughs> like they named those four, and then it was like, I, yeah, not sure beyond that, right? And so then she would ask the audience, well, who struggles with these sins the most, men or women? And everyone was like, the men, definitely, right? Even the guys were like, men, you know? And so, so then she would ask the, the audience, she would say, okay, ladies, well, then let me ask you this, like, like what is it that you, the sin that you struggle with the most? Crickets. Furrowed brow, confused, hard thinking. Um, uh, not sure. Just can't think of something. What was interesting then is that she said eventually one thing would get named and then it was unanimous amongst all the women that yes, that is the sin that we struggle with the most. Lack of self-esteem, right? Just, just don't love myself enough, Right? This is like the common consensus that, that this is the, the number one sin. Now, look, like, I would agree that disorganization and inefficiency and, and lack of self-esteem, like, those can cause problems and pain and pain for you and pain for others, that kind of thing. But when we're talking about all the sins available to us, to name those as kind of the, the top, top rung, um, like, I, I think we're missing the boat here, Right? Um, the, the deepest way that we grieve God probably has nothing to do with your to-do list or your lack of skill around a to-do list, okay? But understanding of sin and what we believe to be our worst sin becomes the foundation for our salvation story, right? So men, according to some of the research in here, uh, worst sins, internet, uh, pride, lust, anger— Ladies, your worst sins, right? Disorganization, inefficiency, lack of self-esteem, right? So what then becomes the functional God that rescues us from our sin? Because it's, well, okay, well, um, I struggle with lust. Well, then maybe I, you know, I'll get married, and then that will sedate the sin, and it will go away. Um, I struggle with self-esteem, so I need to love myself more, and then it will kind of sedate that sin, and, and it will go away, right? I mean, I struggle with pride, so maybe if, if I have a great career— you know, and do well in business, then it will kind of sedate that sin, and, and it will go away. And just like that, marriage and self-love and career are now my idols, and are now my false gods, and they're the things that I look to to save me from the things that I believe plague me. Um, they're, they're the golden calves in my life. It's what I'm looking to to save me. It's what I'm looking to for salvation. And we start living out a salvation story that really does not involve God in any way. The story of Hosea and Gomer, right, happens very quick. Uh, chapter 1, chapter 3 is really where we find the story. 
It's brief, honestly, it's kind of cryptic, not a whole lot of details. The next ten chapters, God unpacks their story, uh, explains how it applies to Israel. Lots of material on their specific sins, uh, lots of material on the earthly consequences of those sins that, that what awaits for them. In chapter 11, so I, I think it's 14 chapters long, um, chapter 11, God takes time and he explains his love for his people. And it's very enduring ter- terminology if you look at it. Um, he talks about loving them as a parent loves their child. Yeah, he, ta- he uses imagery about you know, teaching them to walk, which, which is an endearing moment for a parent. He talks about healing them and kindness and love. Uh, he releases them from bondage and, and feeds them. And, and he's, he is deeply saddened by the punishment that awaits him. And he doesn't want to, to punish them. Interwoven with that are, are examples of Israel's betrayal and rejection. Um, you know, scripture continues on. There, there's some stuff, more stuff on judgment of Israel. And then the last chapter, chapter 14, is this one last final plea from God to Israel. Will you please return to me? And so you see uh, terminology like return to Israel, to the Lord your God. Um, in you, so in, in God, the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away. I will be like the dew to Israel. Um, all kinds of imagery. Uh, he shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. Um, uh, it is I, you know, who, who look after you. I'm like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. And then, it, you know, it ends with whoever is wise... Let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know him, for the way of the Lord is right. Folks, there are a lot of false salvation narratives in our world. A lot of them. Um, the, the, the kind of the secular salvation story that, that we spent the most time on, um, very likely the, the most common, right, where people are just trying to find hope within themselves. Uh, and at first, it may sound silly, but it's actually everywhere. It's, it, it's rampant. And honestly, it's, it's, I think it's a pretty lonely and sad uh, salvation story. Um, so even just a warning to just guard yourself against a false sal- salvation narrative and let that creep into your, your thinking. There is only one true salvation story, right? And that's God's salvation story. The story of Jesus, the story of our sin, the story of him rescuing us. Uh, the story of our eternity with him. And, and that's the story that Hosea is trying to convey to his listeners. That's the story that God is trying to convey to Israel through Hosea. Um, this is a story that we need to know better than anyone else. And I think like Hosea, it's a story that we need to live out and then speak out, right? Because Hosea was asked to live out all these things before he was you know, kind of instructed to, to speak them out. So to live out that salvation story and then speak out that, that salvation story. God loves you. God loves this world. Um, despite our sin, despite our lack of understanding, despite our confusion about what's actually a really bad sin, uh, despite the world just completely turning away from God, God loves us. He pursues us. He pursues you. He's pursuing your family. He's pursuing your neighbor. He's even pursuing the annoying neighbor, like all of them, right? Like God is, God is pursuing. But being part of the story of Hosea 
being part of God's salvation story, that is something that we get to experience, and then it's also something that we get to share with others. Amen. So, let's pray, and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your salvation story that you wrote and that you outlined in Scripture. God, we thank you that it is the one true salvation story. And um, Lord, there's probably a lot of little ways where we have adopted a different salvation story, where we have looked to some other functional God to try to save us from our sins. And Lord, we apologize and repent of that. And and we look to you, Jesus. And uh, so, Lord, we want to be faithful in living this story out. And we also want to be faithful in sharing it with others. Uh, The story of Hosea is powerful. It it represents your true gospel story. And that's one that we want to know and know well and uh, and share with others. So thank you, Lord, again, just for the way that you, you rescue us. We love you, Jesus. Amen.